This episode is sponsored by Glocos Corporation. Glocos is focused on developing and commercializing novel therapies for the treatment of glaucoma, corneal disorders, and retinal diseases. The company pioneered microinvasive glaucoma surgery as an alternative to the traditional glaucoma treatment paradigm, launching its first MIGS device, the iStent, in 2012. Subsequently, Glaucos has introduced several other MIGS devices, including the iStent Inject in 2018, iStent Inject W in 2020, and a three-stent system approved for standalone use, the iStent Infinite in 2022. Of note, Glaucos recently obtained FDA approval for the IDOS TR, Travaprost Intracameral Implant, which is a procedural pharmaceutical designed to deliver continuous prostaglandin analog therapy directly into the anterior chamber for long-term IOP control with proven safety and patient tolerability. In corneal health, Glaucos leverages bioactivated pharmaceuticals designed to strengthen, stabilize, and reshape the cornea to treat corneal ectatic disorders and correct refractive conditions. The company continues to drive innovation. Welcome to the History of Eye Care, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the evolution of modern eye care. We'll hear the stories of today's thought leaders, innovators, and legends. By exploring the past, we can better shape the future. From anterior segment and refractive surgery to retina, plastics, and glaucoma, no part of eye care's rich history will be left in the dark. Here's your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, an eye surgeon and curious historian who is ready to uncover the landmark moments and untold stories that have revolutionized eye care. Let's dive in. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of the History of Eye Care. I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti, and I'm here to guide you on another exciting journey through the modern history of our field. With a medical career stretching across private practice, military service, and professional sports, I'm excited to welcome Dr. Frank Bowden III, a highly respected cornea specialist and well-known expert in the field who you can frequently find on the podium at various ophthalmology conferences. Dr. Bowden served in the Navy for 12 years, and he was recognized with the U.S. Navy Commendation Medal and the U.S. Navy Achievement Medal. One of the remarkable chapters in Dr. Bowden's long career was his role as the official ophthalmologist for the Jacksonville Jaguars, a position he proudly held for over 20 years. Well, Frank, thank you so much for joining us. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your journey into ophthalmology? Thank you very much for inviting me. This is a real pleasure and an honor. My origins, I would say, well, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, and my parents were first in their families to go to college. And so my mother was a registered nurse. My father was an elementary school principal after years of being a, a teacher. And so interestingly, my father wanted to become a physician, but back in the 40s after the World War II, his father passed away. And so he was able to kind of change his plans. He went into education and, and the like. And so one of the joys that I've had in my life has been to allow my father to enjoy a medical career vicariously through my journey, if you will. And so he's always been in in my uh, corner rooting for me, challenging me and motivating me to uh, to aspire to, to higher and higher levels. So I, I always wanted to acknowledge my, my parents because they were pivotal in my development. Interestingly enough, I have another little aside. My father was a science teacher in junior high school. One of the interesting things he had me do was to participate in a regional science fair project for elementary school students. Interestingly enough, my project was making a paper mache 
model of the human eye out of the blue and it was uh didn't win an award but it was placed in a children's museum for several years and i lost track of it but who would have ever know, imagined the irony of developing going through my career and actually becoming a surgeon that was really cool after my uh, parents basically uh, got me into the university of tennessee and and I've completed that program, highest honors and everything. And so I aspired to medical school, got accepted, what, after three years. But I chose to mature and stay in, in college and enjoy that final year. And so I was able to get secure a, a military scholarship through the U.S. Navy, a health profession scholarship that allowed me to relieve my parents the burden of having to put me through medical school. I went into Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee, as a legacy student, my mother went to the nursing school there back in the 50s. So who, who knew? During medical school, I had an opportunity to spend time with the only ophthalmologist on staff. And his name was Axel Hansen. And he was just a polished, tall, good-looking guy that everybody modeled, idolized. And he just carried himself so professionally. And he just knew everything about everything about the eyes and coordinated it with medical care and the like. And that just intrigued me. And so I was able to go do externships in the Navy and uh, get ophthalmology rotations uh, in clinics. And it turned out that I went to San Diego and the chief of the department was a University of Tennessee medical grad. And so he kind of took me under his wing and basically gave me an opportunity to kind of develop my uh, early uh, desire to pursue that as a specialty area. So um, when I finished medical school, I was able to get accepted in the Navy internship in San Diego and subsequently the ophthalmology program. And there I became like the first African-American to complete the ophthalmology training in San Diego at that time. That was 70 I guess, what, 84, that I finished the training. And so, interestingly, at that point, I was only one African-American uh, ophthalmologist out of 60 worldwide in the U.S. Navy. So I got stationed in Jacksonville, Florida, where I was a staff ophthalmologist, one of three for the hospital. And it was uh, kind of a proving ground. It was a, it was a time where I basically was able to practice what, everything that I was trained to do and was able to essentially take care of whatever problems I felt comfortable dealing with. So I dealt with glaucoma, cataracts, glaucoma, and um, what uh, retinal work. I even did a couple of retinal detachment repairs and, and scleral buckles. And, and I mean, it was just an amazing experience for three years to just kind of apply all that you had learned during that time. During that time, I realized that my experience in my residency, I didn't get corneal transplant surgery under my belt. And I aspired to do a cornea fellowship at Will's Eye. Got support from my department chief, who was a Will's Eye retina specialist at the time, a local ophthalmologist, Charlie Adams, who was a Will's cornea fellow. And he basically supported my efforts to uh, aspire to become a cornea specialist. So after three years of being a general ophthalmologist and taking all comers at the at a Naval Hospital here in Northeast Florida, I went off to Philadelphia. My wife at the time, let's see, she was 
in training, getting uh, her master's uh, level. But nonetheless, we were able to go up to Philadelphia, spend a year, do a cornea fellowship with Peter Labson and Elizabeth Cohen, Juan Aronson, and the cornea staff there. That was clearly the most intense, fulfilling, rewarding educational experience I'd ever had. It was it was just amazing to spend an entire year totally immersed in cornea. You saw patients from all around the world in varying stages of disorder, disease, and the like. And, and in order to successfully do the surgery, I had to basically practice every day. And my procedure actually had to look just like the um, attendings procedure in order for them to uh, allow me to do their surgeries. The risk of being a cornea fellow was really instrumental in helping me develop personal discipline, critical examiner of the eye, the anterior segment and the like. And, you know, used to practice uh, doing corneal transplant procedures with, you know, with the what uh, eye bank eyes. We have the eye bank right there in the building. And so I could almost like at the end of every clinic day, I could practice doing the procedure. So it, was, it wasn't until about four or five months into the program that we were able to start doing our individual corneal graphs from start to finish. So that was just a wonderful experience, learning from all the different providers, staff members of the cornea service that allowed you to kind of develop a, I want to say a collector. It's like a, you're gaining little bits of, and pearls from every one of the surgeons to kind of define how you wanted to do the procedure and, and to approach the clinical problems in a very critical and fashion that allowed you to problem solve effectively. And so that was just a, a great experience for me personally that armed me to confidently go into private practice. I felt very good about my ability to manage and problem solve and the like. So I went off into private practice back to Jacksonville, Florida, where I felt like I was going to be, I was actually arrived there being the second cornea specialist in the city and became pretty busy averaging probably 120 corneal transplants a year for a number of years. It was a challenge early on to try to be just a cornea specialist when referrals were kind of erratic. I didn't have a, a network. I didn't have a ready-made practice. There was no body basically um, feeding me cases. And I actually involved myself with an expense-sharing relationship with Dr. Charles Adams and he was just two or three years out of his fellowship training. And so we basically shared an office. I shared his staff. We, he took a chance. And uh, it was kind of an expense sharing relationship where he basically took a chance that I'd be a dud and not be able to pay my way. And I took a chance that I'd be a tremendous success and I'd overpay him for the time. So it, it worked out very well. We've been friends for the past, what, 35 years, and our, we uh, spent some time together sharing and being in a group practice probably for about 10 years before we all kind of disbanded and formed our own individual practices. I was going to say one thing about our group that we formed uh, in 19, I guess, 89 or 90. We formed the Baptist Eye Institute, and we basically had six or seven ophthalmologists. Uh, two of us were cornea specialists. I was paired with Dr. Adams, and it facilitated, I think, my inclusion in that organization, because at the time, I was the only African-American eye surgeon in, in town. By my 
inclusion, my my training, my background, credentials and the like. I was, you know, accepted and the like to be a part of the group. And of course, as we alluded to in our earlier discussions, eyes were on me. I basically had to obviously come up with the results and to have effective care of patients and be engaging and all the things you hear about in terms of being available and affable and able as you start your practice to, I had to embody all those things, plus overcome the fact that being an African-American surgeon, probably during that time, only a third to a half of my patients were African-American. I even had to deal with reluctance of some practitioners in town to refer patients to me in which the patients would actually tell me the things that they would say about me. Heard the adage, you never speak ill of a colleague because to a patient because it'll always get to them. And so I would be introduced as the new cornea specialist in town who was also colored. And they would basically gauge the reaction of the patient to determine, was that going to fly and the, and the like. And it was a non-issue, to say the least. I'd say I've had a wonderful experience in Northeast Florida, South Georgia, in which if you're there to provide a service, you make a difference, you're kind and, and, and respectful of your patients and the like, they don't care what you look like. They don't care your background. It's, it's a one-on-one -on -one interaction between you and the patient, and there's trust, and you're available, and it's the way you build a practice, the way you grow a practice. I've always had a diverse staff. I've had women, guys, African, yeah, I've had a few Asian. I mean, it's, it's, it was almost like the UN going into my office because there was no preferential demographic, if you will, because you were there to take care of all the patients. You know, it's always been kind of like a, if you will, of the practice. I kind of like to look at my early years of practice where I was department chief of a major hospital, eye department, and like, of course, most cases, that's a, a default position. Nobody else wants it. But for me, starting out my practice, it was a helpful little feather in my cap, if you will, to establish my credibility in the community. I had a wonderful experience while being the chief, where the chief of the medical staff of the hospital actually had his mother in West Virginia who needed a corneal transplant. And he had her come down. I took care of both of her eyes. PKPs, and she stayed long enough to for me to feel comfortable with her outcome and the like, and so she was a success. And so when the Jacksonville Jaguars established a team here in Jacksonville, that hospital that I uh, was the uh, department chief then asked me if I wanted to participate and be the, among the team ophthalmologists for that uh, NFL team. Tell us a little about that. I mean, as, as the ophthalmologist for an NFL team, that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Tell me about that experience, because you, you were their ophthalmologist for, for 20 years. 23 years. And I just recently gave up that official designation for one big reason. They wanted me to pay them for that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've struggled year in, year out to determine, does the, where's the return on investment? There's not enough business that I can directly attribute to that relationship to justify a six-figure payment to that team every year. Right. I get the honor of taking care of you. Here, let me pay you for, for exactly. that service. Exactly. <laughs> During the first 10 years or so, the hospital system picked up the tab. 
And so I didn't feel it as much as I did in, in the later years. I've had some just amazing experiences where to be doing training camp, to regular season, to being required to be in the stadium for every game. I'm a diehard fan. I've only missed nine home games in 25 years. Wow. That's unbelievable. Okay. That's unbelievable. <laughs> I, I I love my Jaguars. And I'm, I've awesome. seen some... I've had some joyous times. I've had some, you know, just crying your beers type <laughs> type uh, events and the like. Probably the most cool experiences that I've had was to travel to away games with the team on the team jet and, and be escorted through the town and team buses. And it's just kind of like a, a royal treatment, if you will, for the experience and going down on the field game day and watching them warm up and, and the like. What was the craziest thing you ever saw? Craziest thing I've ever seen, I would say, is one of our football players, a defensive tackle, who essentially decided to go to a bar and, how do you say, had a situation where he tried to intervene for, with a rowdy customer and that individual smashed a beer bottle over his face and ruptured his globe. Wow. And and split his lid open. And I'll never forget, it was an Easter Sunday. I was in Mass, and my phone was blowing up throughout the service, and I realized it was a trainer for the team calling me to come and see the the player. The guy had driven himself to a local hospital, got admitted, and I was asked to see him the next day. And so when you've got a guy that's like 275 pounds and six foot seven, whatever, and he basically uh, lift up his lid and his, his, he had a stellate laceration of his cornea. Hmm. And this was right before his contract year was up. I had the experience of doing his complex corneal laceration repair and a week later did a cataract removal and I well because his lens was ruptured as well, managing his phacoanaphylactic, you know, uveitis and glaucoma and, and the like. And it was uh, amazing to deal with his agent, the local press, the trainers, the coaches, everybody vying for information. Wanting to know where he stood. And I would get phone calls, driving to work with his agent, getting off of an airplane, you know. There'd be local press. We would have to smuggle him in the back door of my office because the press were essentially trying to keep up with him and see what his status was and the like. The triumph of the situation, I was able to get him rehabilitated, believe it or not, to play the next season. Wow. And uh, he had stitches in his cornea for sure. But we had to petition with the league to let him wear a visor, protective visor. He ultimately ended up with like 20-25 vision, uh, visual acuity, and saved his career. For those of you listening who haven't managed an open globe before, if you're not an ophthalmologist and you didn't see that in residency training, which many of us did covering trauma hospitals and things like that, I mean, a 2100 vision after an open globe where you get a stellate corneal laceration and also a cataract on top of that, because a lot of times it does rupture that, that anterior capsule. That's a phenomenal outcome. I think that, speak, I think that speaks to just how good of a surgeon you are, Frank. Can you talk a little bit about, and, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier, your journey as an African-American going through medicine, there had to have been all eyes on you. I mean, there had to oh, have been yeah. those who were rooting for you. And, you know, unfortunately, there probably were those that would 
that were hoping you would fail. Yes. When I did my residency training program, for example, and one of the staff members saw that I went to a historically black medical school, Meharry Medical College in Nashville, he had serious reservations as to my being there. And he never voiced it. He never inappropriate or not supportive, but let's put it this way, at the end of my residency and with high scores and the like finishing, he actually came up to me and told me that he had complained to the department chief that he didn't think that I was going to be likely successful and the like. And he basically came to me to share with me that he came full circle and has been one of my strongest supporters and supported me in my applications to fellowship training and and the like. But I've had those kind of situations even in college, you know, where you basically, uh, I thought it was great when I was in University of Tennessee, you were identified by your social security number. So essentially you would, nobody could like openly be discriminatory because you're essentially judged by your scores on your papers. And I had a funny experience. I think it was, um, physics, where a professor put on my on my paper, he says, please come by my office, I want to meet you, and because I scored really high on it. And as soon as I showed up as a black kid, showed up at his office, I got one of the, the old response, uh, can I help you, you know, or what are you looking for, and, and the like. And I said, well, excuse me, sir, you wanted to see me. He basically um, kind of came full circle and, and said he was impressed. And he said, anything you want to do, anything where you want to go, I'll be supportive. I'll be happy to write a letter of recommendation. So I've had some wonderful experiences like that where I've always told people, if you're, if you're prepared, if you have the right attitude, if you conduct yourself professionally, you know, people will want to help you. People will want to kind of root for you and kind of help you get to what, you know, lofty levels that you, you know, can aspire. And and I'll be very honest, I've actually achieved more than I imagined, than I had aspired to early in my career because of the support of people around me. Even my practice administrator, Patty Barker, we even made a pact where I told her I wanted to retire with her running the practice. And I wanted to basically have it where she handled all the HR the attorneys, the bankers, everybody else, and just let me deal with patient care. So we would formulate policy, implement, and and, and I, together, and I would basically task her with implementing. And so that allowed me to avoid per, uh, physician burnout. That allowed me to basically innovate and bring new technologies to the practice. When you consider that I've kind of maintained surgical skills, comprehensive anterior segment practice doing comprehensive glaucoma care, tube shunts and MIGS procedures, that I've, things that I've learned just in the past six or seven years, corneal transplant surgery from PKPs to DMEX to kind of go through the iterations of development and like to go from my initial cataract surgery experience, intracapsular cataract extraction with a Sontec lens, visual rehabilitation to now, you know, femtosecond laser assisted cataract surgery with premium IOLs and being able to do refractive cataract surgery is very cool. I've had the uh, opportunity to witness the development of refractive surgery. When I started private practice, I actually bought RK instruments. I started out doing RK, went through PRK, LASIK, and now phacic IOLs and intacts and everything, comprehensive keratoconus care. We used to see patients who, once they had 
diagnosis of keratoconus. It was a matter of how soon do you need to have a corneal transplant. That was a matter of getting on the transplant waiting list. And now we rarely do corneal transplants because we have so many other cross-linking, intact ring segments and fake toric IOLs and the like. We were able to offer so much more to patients. I've had some of my colleagues wondering, like, how much longer are you going to work? And I tell them, you know, I'm just having fun. And I have more to offer my patients now. And and it's so rewarding to have lived through these innovations and, and developments and the like. It's a lot easier to pick up and learn new pr- new procedures nowadays. Back when I was uh, a young surgeon, I had to go visit other surgeons. I had to attend all of our meetings. I, I'm one of the few people that have gone to all the ASCRIS meetings for the past 35 years or so. And and it's been just an amazing. I would always go to professional meetings with the idea of what am I going to bring back to my practice that I can implement, take care of patients, be more profitable, to make things work. So I've witnessed a lot of wonderful developments that make almost what you did 30 years ago look crude and ill-informed and and the like, but it's uh, certainly rewarding because every now and then you get a patient that has like a, a dense 5 plus an S cataract in which you have to revert to a planned extra cap, and it's nice to be able to have those experiences. <laughs> in thinking about all of the things you just mentioned, from MIGs to cross-linking to IOLs, fake IOLs, LASIK, PRK, what did you feel like in your career was the most pivotal innovation? And it's okay if you give more than one, but what did you feel was some of the most pivotal moments there? I think one of the biggest uh, moments was fake emulsification. When I did my trans, when I did my ophthalmology residency, they were all planned extract surgeries. I had to start fa- and learn fake emulsification in private practice on my own, and it was kind of like. You take baby steps, you try, you go a few steps and convert and and the like. And realizing that I was learning this wonderful technology with the crudest of instruments at the time, where chamber stability was a real challenge and a lot of the nuanced details of surgical technique that enabled reproducible surgical experiences to take place, that was huge. And then to and of course, the big pressure when I started on myself was when I started uh, my private practice, I was the only specialist in the in the multi-specialty group who had not done phaco emulsification. So I had to quickly get up to speed in order to be on par with my peers and and the like. And so, you know, I challenged myself. I readily realized that I needed to continually learn, continually adapt and refine, you know, techniques. So that was probably the biggest change. Another change for me was in doing cornea work, doing corneal transplantation. I felt that PKPs were very challenging, tedious to do, and get excellent visual recovery sooner than patients would expect. It used to be that when you did a corneal transplant, Patients didn't realistically expect to see before six to 12 months or more, you know, with selective suture removal and astigmatism issues and, and the like. I think the biggest transformation there has been in uh, lamellar surgery, in which I was able to do some, believe it or not, epikeratophagia procedures, anterior lamellar procedures with an intralase 
laser to anterior lamellar keratoplasty, and then endothelial keratoplasty, you know, just phenomenal in terms of just rapid visual recovery and just elegant results early. That was just a game changer in terms of reducing the number of postoperative visits, reducing the numbers of complications that you were dealing with and, and the like. And then having gone from trabeculectomies to tube shunts and the like, the onset of the minimally invasive glaucoma procedures has been just an amazing personal challenge, but that I was accustomed to doing, uh, working in the angle, doing you know, laser surgeries and reconstructive anti-segment procedures and, and realizing early on that glaucoma was a traveling companion of cornea surgery, and so you needed to, you can't avoid it, and, and you have to deal with it. And so having as many tools, you know, available from endocycle photocoagulation to MIGS procedures to tube shunts and to manage them long term and deal with the ups and downs of uh, managing patients long term was um, certainly very much of a challenge. As far as refractive surgery, the biggest pivotal moment has been, for me, the fake IOLs and being able to have solutions for patients that allow you to avoid doing borderline indication corneal refractive surgery. And I'd say another thing that has been a pivotal area in my career is uh, where I spend a lot of time doing dry eye, dry eye care, ocular surface management and the like, which had its seminal moments in my fellowship training in external diseases at uh, Wills. It's really funny, my administrator can actually remember my documentation in paper charts back in the 90s, where I would actually refer to uh, lid margin diseases MGD and to actually have references to that. And because back when you were dealing with a lot of ocular surface disorders, corneal transplants, you know, you were doing would fare oftentimes with the state of the ocular surface and the nexa tissues that would either be supportive or disruptive to your efforts to uh, have a successful corneal graft and visual rehabilitation following that. So I guess I learned a lot of skills and, and appreciation for ocular surface inflammation, exposure, MGD, all these factors that impact on the multifactorial state of dry eye disease. I say that back in, I guess, 2012, I purchased the LipiFlow device. I was the fourth practice in the state of Florida to purchase the LipiFlow device. Well, that was a device that cost $100,000 at the time. And I basically realized I need to make this thing work because I need to figure out dry eye. I need to see how this fits in, how I can use it in my practice, my anterior practice, integrate dry eye care with my anterior segment surgical care. And I embraced years ago one of the biggest reasons that patients were either unhappy with refractive surgery, cataract surgery, or had bad outcomes with glaucoma surgery was dry eye disease that was either unrecognized or undertreated. And once I made a kind of a paradigm shift to include an assessment of dry eye status with my surgical patients and either to identify it, bring it to patients' attention, initiate some optimizing medical therapy in preparation for their eye surgery. My post-op chair time was uh, significantly reduced. And then I was also, as a cornea specialist in town, was taking care of other people's headaches 
after cataract surgery, after corneals, after glaucoma surgery or cataract surgery. They were like, I had this surgery, I paid a lot of money, I can't see, and I'm, I'm not happy, and blah, blah, blah. So that helped refine my skills with ocular surface management. And it allowed me to be receptive to the innovations that became uh, down the line as a result of Tier Science, the company that created Lipiflow. And I spend time following Steve Maskin and his research in my domain gland dysfunction. And I've incorporated a lot of his, his work and his approach to things. It's been, you know, a real journey to incorporate dry eye care, comprehensive dry eye care in our practice. We've actually made it a profit center in our practice that rivals other refractive cataract and, and the like by being able to have an array of comprehensive dry eye services and the like. And my administrator, Patty Barkey, has been just influential in developing what uh, infrastructure, implementation, pearls, if you will, to help us to implement this dry eye care in our practice. It, we had our tough times and We've had to work through a lot of inefficiencies and figuring out what's the best way to introduce it, educate patients and the like in order to uh, get people to, to embrace it. But now, you know, we have uh, our Dry University. Patty Barkey essentially it was her, her idea. All of our docs rallied around and imp helped to implement it. And we've now preparing for our 25th seminar, day and a half long seminar that you know allows us to spend time educating MDs, ODs, clinical staff, as well as staff members that implement dry eye programs within the practice. And that's been a fun journey as well, sharing that information and developing industry relationships to allow us to oftentimes to have like a first dibs type of opportunity to utilize their products and to give them an opinion about feasibility and, 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 and the like. And we've also added clinical research in the practice and we've had an opportunity to be involved in some clinical trials with dry eye, glaucoma and the like. So that's been part of our practice journey that has been characterized by innovation and adaptation. I tell people it's like you need to always be nimble so as to understand the, the landscape in your area in your reality and the like, because that was critical for my success. For example, as, as an African-American surgeon, it was unrealistic for me to expect I'm going to have this huge OD network referring me surgery, that it's going to keep me busy and the like. And so that's uh, during my second year of practice, realizing that that's when I essentially made a shift to embrace comprehensive eye care to make my appeal to primary care docs as my primary referral source in my community to help get through that critical mass of patients you need in order by word of mouth referral to grow the practice. And it was then in 2000 that I essentially established the integrated practice where I hired an optometrist. I figured if people are not going to refer patients to me, I'm going to hire my own doctor, set them up, and they'll refer to me. And that was a very productive, fruitful model for me as an African-American surgeon to essentially get access to patients. Our current practice has three surgeons, but four optometrists in three locations. 
And so the optometrists do a lot of the primary eye care work. They worked with me for, you know, anywhere from five to 11 years. And interestingly, with the innovations in communication in terms of cell phones and texting and imaging transfer, it makes it a whole much, a lot easier to support the optometrists in our practice because they're able to, we're able to communicate even more efficiently than we did 20 years ago, which is really good. But yeah, it's been really challenging to, like I said, deal with insurance, manage care back in the 90s when everybody was under the influence that, you know, you need to join, be a part of this PPMCs, these organized groups that were consolidating because if you didn't join our group, you're going to be left in the dust and private practice is going to be, you know, a thing of the past and don't get left out. And so to persevere with my career in the face of all these ups and downs and and the economy changes and most recently pandemic and and the like to still kind of emerge from all that and still have a practice that you're, uh, I'm doing what I like doing when I feel like I'm making a difference, you know, is, is huge. You've certainly faced some challenges as an African-American ophthalmologist. You've overcome them all and you've, you've been extremely successful. What advice would you give to someone else who may be facing doubt or just they don't feel supported? I mean, what, what, what advice would you have for them uh, moving forward? I would say the first thing that one has to do is to assure that they are prepared. And when they are prepared, when they're solid, sound, and the like, then to have confidence and to have confidence in yourself that, well, as my father used to say, if you're an effective and productive and affable doctor, you'll do well. You will prevail. You will. Now, there are going to be some challenges that you have to overcome and you have to kind of like decide, do you want to be a victim and say, woe is me and I can't do this because so-and-so has got their foot on my head or my shoulder? Or you can essentially take a victor approach where you're just like, I got to figure this out. What do I have to do to make this work for me? And it's kind of like problem solving, advanced problem solving. You figure out the lay of the land, you see what the impediments are, you see what the challenges are, and you figure it out. If you're committed and you do what you need to do, you're more likely to prevail than you are to fail. And I credit my parents for that mindset, that approach and the like. I basically have felt that opportunity befalls you know, most all of us at some point, but not everybody may be prepared to run with the ball and, and take it to the next level and to be get to where they want to be. But I really think it's important to, you almost have to, you know, like envision success, identify where you want to be, identify role models, identify people that have been successful, figure out what did they do, what were the circumstances that led to their success, and make a choice, make a decision. Am I prepared to make those choices? Am I prepared to sacrifice? Am I prepared to go through some less than stellar success period? Like, for example, with my ASC. When I first started my ASC, it was no cash cow, you know, in terms of a, of a vehicle for revenue. I mean, it, it was a break even. It was profitable, and but not wildly profitable. And so it's enabled me to grow. It's been able to be very successful. We have capacity for, for more growth, and we're working on that as I acquire 
a new surgeon has joined me just this month, which is great. But I think for uh, any uh, minority surgeon, you have to essentially be just extremely confident in yourself, in your skills, in your judgment, in your knowledge base, continually challenge yourself and learn evidence by my administrator marvels at the fact that over the past seven years, we've added probably 10 new procedures that I perform in the practice in the, in the surgery center and the like. And, and you basically surround yourself with capable people who, ex, who understand your practice philosophy, understand you, and are genuinely in your corner wanting you to succeed and to distance yourself from the naysayers and the people who are telling you how you can't succeed or how you won't, how you, it's, it's, this is impossible or this is not going to work. But I, I definitely feel that making a contact with people that you respect or who have been successful, getting where you want to be, accepting mentorship or supportive comments and, and um, efforts and, and extensions to generously share, accept those and not have attitude, not have, you know, a chip on your shoulder, not feel like you're a victim and that you're, to me, that's, I think, has guided me and has helped me to make a lot of wonderful contacts throughout the years that have been enduring in ophthalmology, um, key people that have given me an opportunity to realize my goals. I can't possibly repay them. Did you feel the bar was higher for you? I mean, obviously you were valedictorian in, in college, right? Uh, valedictorian in, medical school. In medical, medical, in medical, I mean, that, yeah, I mean, that's, that's awesome. I would dare say that I felt that other colleagues of mine would possibly get a pass that I had to jump through hurdles and prove myself to get the same acknowledgement. And even my father used to tell me, you know, you can't be average as a, a minority student. You have to be above average to get acknowledgement, to get recognition. And like, I've embraced that. So I basically felt it all throughout my career. It was, you have to strive for excellence. You have to not be an average guy. You don't want to be, I don't know, someone that colleagues are receptive to reaching out to you. You know, I've always like to be a KOL in, in industry and to help spread the word of new technologies and procedures and, and the like has been fun. It's been stimulating. It's been challenging and the like. It brings you in contact with a wide variety of other colleagues in different parts of the country and different, you know, you find people that have similar practice experiences and others that have kind of been in a silo and, and really haven't ventured out and to be visible like that is very powerful. I think one of the biggest legacies that I can share is my visibility, the fact that I'm out there, the fact that other people can see that I do what you do and I don't look at you. And it's rewarding, it's powerful, it can be inspiring to other African-American youth. One of the things that just really bring me, I just lights me up in my clinic is to see a young black kid coming in my office, uh, you know, accompanying their parent or being, and, and they're just fascinated that you're doing this work, you own this practice. And just to put a, see their eyes and, and to see that they can potentially envision themselves to aspire to the same thing is, is powerful. Tell me about your mentors. First mentor I mentioned earlier was Axel Hansen, and he basically was just 
subtly enticing me to consider ophthalmology and prompted me to go into take some externships in ophthalmology while I was in medical school. And he was just a, a, a very kind, gentle guy who was very smart. And I just wanted to, he was like the first physician that I really wanted to emulate and pattern my career after. Following that, I would say the surgeons at the Naval Hospital that gave me an opportunity, that believed in me, that gave me respect and allowed me a nurturing environment in which to grow, develop, and learn how to learn, learn how to learn medicine. Very, very powerful. And then when I did my fellowship training between Peter Labson and Elizabeth Cohen and then Juan Aronson and, and a lot of the other guys who are at Wills now, who are the older guys at Wills, they were younger guys that I would have some occasional contact with that over the years have developed more, you know, like Irv Raber and Sadir uh, Hanush and, and just a number of other guys that I, I've just had wonderful collegial relationships where you, you could always call them up. You could always ask them anything. Everybody was approachable, eager to share. And that's how you grow. That's how you develop and refine your clinical prowess and your skill and, and the like. There was a guy in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. He had a similar practice to mine. His name was Jim Hayes. And he basically, in an act of just uh, genuine kindness and collegiality, invited me to come to Atlanta, spend an evening in his apartment, go to his office and watch him do LASIK back in the day. And it was, I mean, it was the most generous gesture of a colleague that, uh, and we've still are friends to this day and see each other at meetings and the like, but little things like that, that people can do for you. All of us can have had those people in our careers, in our lives that have had genuine kindness and to share. And then of course we'd pick each other's brain. We'd learn from each other, practice management tips and things like that. And that was always wonderful. Since I've been in private practice, I also had contact with an African-American ophthalmology group called Roman Barnes. Roman Barnes Society was essentially formed, gosh, almost 100 years ago by a couple of, an ENT surgeon and, a, and an ophthalmologist, black surgeons, and it's grown, sustained itself over the years. And it's been a wonderful, supportive group of African-American, they probably at any given time, there are no more than about three or 350 black ophthalmologists in the country is dispersed all over. But to get together for an evening during the academy meetings and the like with supportive environment, we're all in the same struggle. We all have little variations of the frustrations that we endure and the like. And, and to be able to network and see how people solve their problems and overcome various problems and then to adapt and modify your approach to, to your career, your, your hospital struggles, your collegial issues and, and, and the like was very helpful. And it was kind of like in that situation that I formulated my plan, as I mentioned earlier, of abandoning the idea of I'm just going to be a cornea specialist to then embrace comprehensive eye care, ophthalmology, and delve into glaucoma, delve into refractive, delve into dry eye care, and into amass a skill set that allows me to be self-sustaining. It was really, really important for me to be to have autonomy, to have an ability to 
practice at the highest level of what expertise in the subspecialty area the maintain contact with all the innovations and stay current all those things were important to me and to have economic independence autonomy and self-determination priceless absolutely priceless and that's i mean i value that so much so anybody that can aspire to do that is worth the sacrifice it's worth the challenges to uh, aspire to that and one thing I will say that uh, I just want to mention, too, I had a unique advantage when I started practice that I haven't mentioned. Because I was in the health profession scholarship with the Navy, the Navy paid my way through medical school, and I emerged to start my private practice with no educational debt, which is absolutely unheard of yeah, it's today. Huge. Yeah, It's huge. So I borrowed enough money to for my wife and myself to live on for six months paid it back in the second six months and haven't looked back and was able to invest in the practice and and to develop and to grow and the like. Uh, you know, I've had a wonderful career, wonderful experience, wonderful career journey, but I tell you, my military service and that health profession scholarship was pivotal. Wow. Well, Frank, first off, thank you for your service. Uh, thank you for your time in the <laughs> Navy, and and uh, we all appreciate that. And then thank you for, for paving the way for others and for just being a pioneer in the field of eye care and for spending some time with us today to share your story. Uh, hopefully it'll inspire some others. I know it inspired me. So thank you. Well, thank you so much. You're a gracious host, and this has been fun and fun to reminisce and, and some of the experiences that I've had and to uh, settle, quell the fears of any of my uh, colleagues locally. I'm not done yet. <laughs> we will look for more great things from you, Frank. Thank you so much. <laughs> Have a good evening. You too. To our listeners out there, thank you for joining us on another episode of the History of Eye Care. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did, and as always, that you learned something and took away some valuable insights. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. Drop us a rating or review. Don't forget to follow us on social media and join in the conversation. I want to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for helping support this editorially independent content, in particular Alcon, who is a founding level sponsor of the season one of the History of Eye Care. And that concludes another episode of the History of Eye Care with your host, Dr. Morgan Micheletti. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast on your preferred platform. Don't forget to follow us on social media to stay up to date with our latest episode information and to join in on the conversation.